Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn in the Old Testament to, um, well, we're going to start in the book of 1 Samuel. We are going to begin here shortly a study, working our way through chapter by chapter, verse by verse of First and Second Samuel. By the way, there are some journal Bibles, um, just journal copies of First and Second Samuel available to you. Um, they're right out there in the Welcome Center. These are just little copies of First and Second Samuel that have a page of Scripture on one side and a side to journal or keep sermon notes or make notes on. And it's just a good way for us to kind of work through the passage together. I'd encourage you to pick up a copy of that and just use that as we, as we get ready to start our, our study together through First and Second Samuel. Um, let me pray for us as we get started. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, the God of Israel. You are our Father. Forever and ever, God, we are yours through Christ, and we thank you for that. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom, and you're exalted as head above all. Riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand, O Lord, are power and might. And in your hand, Lord, it is to make great and give strength to all. And God, we thank you, and we praise your glorious name. And now, Lord, and now, Lord, I pray that you will keep forever, Lord, your purposes and your thoughts in the hearts of your people, and you will direct our hearts, Lord, toward you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've been with us here over the last couple of three weeks, you know that we're doing something a little bit different here. Um, as I said, normally we work our way through whole books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Um, for the last couple of weeks and then again today, we're taking time to look at key events in David's life. And we will spend a lot of time looking at David's life in First and Second Samuel. But for the last couple of weeks and today, we're taking time to look at some key events in David's life to address a particular, specific part of our walk with Christ within the context of our church family here at Westwood. All right. One of the things that we do here at Westwood is we we call ourselves to what we call meaningful membership. And a part of that is our agreement together as a church to live our lives in accordance with the scriptures and the way they are laid out for us and how we've summarized that in our church covenant. And, and a part of our church covenant gives different ways that we seek to live together and encourage each other in our walk with Christ in different areas of our lives, in our, in our areas of discipleship, in our worship, in our service. And included in that is our stewardship, how we care for and steward the gifts and the things, the money, the possessions that God has given us. And so we as elders felt like, let's take a couple of weeks, let's take some time here in January to address this particular issue. So you come in, and if this is your first Sunday here, or if you've only been here a couple of times or whatever, then you know, you're know you kind of coming in into a series that is addressing us as a church family, but really all believers, all Christians, okay? So these are the principles that we're looking at. And so what we've done over the last couple of weeks is look at David's life and see how he exemplifies for us, first off, a man whose heart is set on worship. 
And his worship of God, his understanding of who God is, how magnificent and majestic he is, what I just prayed a second ago, comes from David's prayer in First Chronicles chapter 29. Just glorifying God and reminding himself and others as he prayed of God's majesty and glory, of his victory, of his goodness, and his provision. So David focused on worship of God. And because he saw God the way he should, then he saw himself the way he should and was thankful for that. He was thankful for the grace that God had extended to him. And that gratitude and that heart for God and that worship then results in David's life, in David being a generous king. He's a generous king because he's a thankful king. And he's a thankful king because he's a worshiping king and has God as the treasure of his heart. Now, David was messed up. In a lot of ways. We will see that as we work our way through First and Second Samuel. He is exemplary in some ways and an example not to follow in many others. But as we look at this overview, we look at passages, and what we're doing with some of these passages is taking application points, not the point, not the primary point of some of these passages, but application points as it relates to generosity. And that's so it's a little different for us. Here's the deal. If we, like David, recognize and worship God in all of his majesty. And if we, like David, as we worship God and see him in all of his majesty, recognize and receive the undeserved grace of God. Then we also, like David, will be overwhelmed with that grace and will and will and will demonstrate that understanding and that being overwhelmed by that grace in generosity because our god is a generous god amen and those who are called to him those who profess him those who walk with him are also generous and that's the the pattern that we see there so the first thing I want you to do is, is take your bible and by the way it's okay all right if you if you use this for your Bible, and, and sometimes I do, that's okay. But I want to encourage you, unless you're a better man than I am, and many of you are, this thing can also be a distraction. All right? I get it. So if you're going to read the Bible on this, that's fine. But just exercise some discipline and don't use it for anything else over the next 30 or 45 minutes, okay? But if you're not able to do that, and I'm not, then I encourage you to take a copy of the Pew Bible, all right? Take a paper-bound copy of the Bible. If you're using the Pew Bible, turn to page 252. That's where you'll find 1 Samuel. And the event that we're looking at here in David's life illustrates for us that the blessings of God we receive should be used to bless others. The blessings of God that we receive should be used to bless others. And the illustration of that, the example of that, comes in an account in, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, where David's wives, his children, and the wives and children of all of those who are with David are taken away in a raid by the Amalekites. So this enemy group comes in and raids the city, takes away all of the people, all right, takes away all of the cattle, takes away all of the possessions. They take all of these things and, and flee. They don't kill anybody. They just take them all away. And David 
wants to go rescue them. He wants to go get them back and rescue them. And David comes and he inquires of the Lord as to whether or not this is what he ought to do. All right, he comes and asks the Lord, is this what I need to do? Do I need to go and do that? And that's what we have this account of here in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And I'll read a portion of it in just a minute. But one of the things that we see in this chapter, and we'll see this much more clearly as we get into First and Second Samuel, is that the blessing of God comes to David many times in the blessing of strength, in the blessing of ability, just the ability to do what it is that God calls him to do. And I say that because I'm not going to read all of this, but in chapter 30, we have this picture of David and this ragtag group of people who are just not doing well. In fact, it says in 1 Samuel 30, there in verse 6, David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. So here's the deal. The the Amalekites came and took all of these people, and the people are blaming David. And they're ready to stone him because of what has happened. He's in great distress. That's an understatement, I guess. You know? But it says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. We will see this other times from David. But my point here is just the blessing of strength. In the middle of this distress, in the middle of this struggle, David found strength. And here's the deal. He found the strength in God's faithfulness, God's promises. That's what he's laying his whole trust in here, is in God's faithful promises. The blessing of strength. But then there's also the blessing of God's guidance, because David doesn't just jump into this. He asked the Lord what it is that he ought to do. It says down there in verse 8, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And God said, pursue, for you will surely overtake and shall surely rescue. The blessing of God's guidance. Here's why I point this out. We're going to see a clear contrast between Saul and David as we begin to work our way through First and Second Samuel. About the same time that David is on his knees inquiring of the Lord, should I go on this rescue mission? King Saul is going to the witch of Endor. To find out why his kingdom's falling apart around him. So one king is going to a witch, and David goes to the Lord. And there he gets the blessing of God's guidance, the direction that he needs. God says, Go, you will succeed. So he has the blessing of success. And that's exactly what we see taking place. I'm not going to get into the detail. They find an Egyptian out in the wilderness. They take care of him. They feed him. He leads them to where the Amalekites are. It goes on down there in verse 18 of 1 Samuel 30 to say that when he had gone, he had seen them down in the valley there, spread across the land, eating, drinking, and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down. From twilight until evening and the next day, not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. So that's, that's the picture of success, the blessing of success. Now here's the point, though, that I want to look at right quick. David brings all of this back, all these cattle, all these goats, all these sheep, all these wives and sons and daughters. Everything that was taken is brought back, plus some. And as they come back, it says up in verse 20 that they drove all of this back and they said, this is David's spoil. 
Verse 21, then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, who had been left at the brook together. So David took this army of men, 200 of them were too tired to go with him into battle, and he left them behind. Those who he had left behind, it says there, went out to meet David, to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people and greeted them, then all the wicked and worthless fellows among all the men who had come with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. So a few of these people said to David and said to those others, you guys are worthless. You didn't go with us into the fight. You stayed behind. You can have your wife and have your children and you can go, but you don't get any of the rest of this stuff. And there was a lot of stuff. There was a lot of cows, a lot of sheep, a lot of spoil. David said in verse 23, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? Literally, really the idea there is, what are you talking about? Nobody's going to listen to that. For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. And then it goes on to say that not only just for those who went into the battle and those who stayed behind, but even those who were a part of the people of Israel in other regions and other places, David took some of that to them. Here's the point that I'm making. The blessing of generosity to others comes because David recognizes that God's been generous to him. That's it. God gave us the victory. God gave us the spoil. God gave us back our families. Who are we to say that someone cannot be a part of that, that cannot receive that? And so this blessing of God is resulting in a blessing to others. Now let's go to one other example in David's life. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's on page 360 if you're using the Pew Bible there. 2 Samuel chapter 9. David, if, if we just fast forward, David has taken the throne. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God has made a promise to David. God has made a covenant with David. And what he has said in that covenant is that your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever. Your throne will be established forever. Now, we understand from a New Testament perspective that that covenant that God made with David is perfectly and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus because he is a descendant of David. But God makes this covenant with David. It's astounding. Earlier in, there, in the passage, God says, I took you from out of the sheepfold and made you king. And David recognizes this, and he prays this beautiful prayer of gratitude there in chapter 7. Fast forward, chapter 8 gives us all this summary of all these victories. And then in chapter 9, and I'm going to read this, it's not very long, but I want you to hear this story, this account of David's kindness. And here's the point that I want to make. The kindness of God that we receive should result in us being kind, and I'll add in a tangible way, to others. God's kindness to us should result in our kindness to others. And I believe that's illustrated. Here, David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, 
I'll, I'll back up just a second. There's a context to this. There's a point here that if you went back to 1 Samuel chapter 20, and we don't have to go back to that, but Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan and David are very good friends. They have this deep love for one another. And, and there's an account there where Jonathan is telling David, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to see that you're safe. If my father wants to take your life, I will tell you. I will, I will tell you if you are in danger from my father. But then there's one other step in that relationship between Jonathan and David. And I'll just read this to you from 1 Samuel chapter 20. But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But then in verse 14, Jonathan says, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. His house would be his descendants. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, Jonathan says, don't cut off my family. And Jonathan made a covenant, it tells us, with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So there's this an agreement, a covenant, an arrangement, a friendship, a promise between David and Jonathan that Jonathan says to David, I will protect you. And, jo- and Jonathan is asking David, protect me and my family. So David made that pledge. So here in 2 Samuel, in, verse nine, in chapter 9, David said, Is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? For the sake of that promise he had made to Jonathan. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there still, excuse me, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? So first it was for for Jonathan's sake. And now David saying, can I show someone, someone kindness for God's sake? For the sake of God's character. Can I show someone the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Makar, the son of Emil at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Makar, the son of Emil at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all that to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and bring in the produce that your master's grandson may eat bread, may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. 
So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. In the eyes of Saul, David was a bitter enemy who needed to be killed. We will see that unfold as we begin to look at this passage. And when Saul saw David as his, as his rival, he wanted him done away with. But what we see on David's part is that David's not looking for a rival to kill. In fact, we'll see multiple occasions that David had the opportunity to kill Saul and he would not. David's not looking for a rival to kill or for a rival's offspring. He's looking for someone to bless. That's the whole point of chapter 9. Is there not someone I can bless for the sake of Jonathan and for the sake of my God? So he wants to demonstrate that. And so kindness is the key word in this. And the kindness that we see here is the word that we've seen throughout the study of Ruth. We saw it in the book of Judges a little bit, and we'll see it a lot in First and Second Samuel. It's the idea of God's Hesed covenant love for us. His covenant kindness to us. His faithfulness to us. And you'll need to remember this definition because it's one we'll see again and again. This Hesed love of God is mercy and kindness that's shown to someone in need by someone who can meet that need, but is not necessarily obligated to do so. And David wanted to show that kind of kindness to someone for Jonathan's sake and because that's the way God had treated him. David had received this kindness. God had promised it to him and his descendants forever. And he sought to extend that to someone else. Can I show someone else the kindness of God? We will see as we study David's life, this is part of what it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. That we want to see those characteristics of God reflected in our own life. So he wants to show that kindness. And he wants to show that kindness for the sake of God's name and God's kindness for the sake of his personal promise. But also just because there's someone in need. Mephibosheth has this need. He extends this kindness to someone who has no power or means to help himself in the culture of that day. And he extends that kindness, look at this, in an extraordinary way. In an extravagant way to someone who by the social customs of the day he could have rightly killed. Because Saul was the ex-king. And this is Saul's great-grandson, Jonathan's son. He has claim to that king according to the custom of the day. And other kings do away with those who have claim to their throne, right? But we don't see that here from David. David is extending to Mephibosheth this kindness that's extravagant. He will sit at my table. He will come to my house. My table will be his table. His sons will be taken care of. I am taking care of Mephibosheth. That's a mouthful, by the way, okay? Just, just say that a hundred times. He will be cared for. I will take that responsibility. I will take that expense. He will live in my city, eat at my table. He's no longer estranged, no longer exiled. That's covenant kindness. That's what David had received from God. And that's what David seeks to extend to this man, to Mephibosheth and to his family. Just kind of an aside application here on the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. I, I, let me just remind you again that meeting material, physical, emotional needs and spiritual needs of those who are 
tired, those who don't have the energy to cross the river and go into the battle, those who don't have the means, those who have made poor decisions and are dealing with those consequences, or those who are just victims of decisions that have been made. Mothers who need assistance, dads who need help, babies. That's the ministry of Life Choices and and thousands of other pregnancy support centers like that around this country. That's the reason that Westwood helped start that ministry many years ago and why we continue to support it and encourage our members to be involved in it. That's what we see here in these first two examples. This kindness that's shown because God has been kind. And this picture of just extending grace because we've received grace. That's why we support that ministry. That's why you are encouraged to be a part of that ministry. That's why we as a church include them the way we do in our budget. And your tithes and offerings go to help support that ministry. I just It was important that you see that even in the context of this. The generosity of God, the kindness of God, the grace of God. Now turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 29. We've seen this passage, but not this particular portion of it. What I want us to see here as we begin to wrap this up is that the generosity of God that we experience should result in us being generous as well. The generosity of God that we experience should result in generosity, not just Not just generosity for the sake of generosity, but generosity for the sake of worship. That this is a part of our worship, a part of what it means to to live our lives as living sacrifices, offering ourselves to God. We have, over the last two weeks, read David's prayer. We've heard it, and I'm not going to go back and read it again. I want us to look at the first part of chapter 29. We have said, David is a worshiping king. And David is a thankful, grateful king. And because he worships, because his heart is set on God as his treasure, because he recognizes God's grace as being extended to him, then he is also a generous king. And the first part of Chronicles 29 is David is encouraging and demonstrating and preparing Solomon to take up the mantle of leadership and build the temple himself then that's what we see here as this offering is being taken in 1 Chronicles 29. And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, wood for the things of wood, beyond, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, it says in verse 3, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own, of gold and silver, And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, the gold of Ophir. 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house. And for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? 
Then the leaders and fathers, the leaders of fathers' houses made their freewill offerings, as did the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of the thousands and of hundreds and officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 dariacs of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. There's really not much point in trying to go through and put in today's financial terms the amount that was given here. It is extraordinary. It doesn't even touch it. It's incredible. The wealth that was given here on this day. I can't imagine what that temple must have looked like. Golly. Walls covered with silver. I mean, it's just it's an amazing thing to see. And to be reminded that the glory of this temple made with gold and silver and bronze was simply a dim reflection of the glory of God who is worshipped there. Don't, don't ever lose that reality. That it's just a picture of God's glory. Generosity of God experienced by us should mean we are generous as an act of worship. We do that as a personal act of worship. Look at what it says there in verse 2. David said, I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able. Down in verse 4, he says, I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver, and I give it to the house of my God. So David here, this is a personal issue for David. He is setting a personal example. And it's only after David sets this personal example does he, he then call on the people to give, to follow that example. So David is leading the way here. He's setting this example for them and doing so in extraordinary ways. Doing, doing so in, in just, just generous ways. I'm thankful for this example here. And I'm thankful that even as we think about this act of personal worship on the part of David... That, and we see these other leaders following his example. I asked Jennifer, our, our treasurer, a couple of weeks ago to, to get me some information. And it's something that I've looked at before. Here at Westwood, and I won't get into the numbers as far as the giving units and the number of people that give and that kind of thing. That's, that's not my point here. Here's my point. I said, Jennifer, I want you to figure out for me what percentage of our budget giving comes from the leadership of the church, from the deacons and from the elders. Tell me what that number is. And you can move the numbers. There was one particular number that she moved that put it in there that put it about 28%, another one at 31%. The point being, about a third of our budget giving comes from our leadership. And I only mention that to say that you will never be asked to do something that your leaders are not doing already. And you can, you can know that. And you can follow that example, as David did here. Generosity on the part of David was a personal act of worship, and it is for many of us as well. It's also a spiritual act of worship. Look at verse 5. Notice what David said there. He was talking about his devotion to the house of my God. David sees this act of worship, this act of giving, not just as a monetary exchange. He's not just throwing something in the plate. 
And he's not just inviting the people to throw something in the plate. What he invites the people to do, whoever then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord. David is asking the people, not for their generous gifts first, but for their hearts. Give your heart to the Lord. Consecrate yourself to God. That's David's request of the people. And is that not what he has prayed for earlier? He has said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people. Direct their hearts towards you. Here, David is saying, if your hearts are directed toward the Lord, then that's going to be exhibited in this work of generosity. That's the prayer that he prayed. That's the example that he set. Here's something that David got that he understood. Something that Jesus tells us much later on in the book of Matthew. When he says in chapter 6 and verse 21 that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And David says, treasure God. Treasure his glory. Treasure his worship. Treasure his grace. Treasure that through your gratitude and your thanksgiving and demonstrate that treasuring of God and consecrating your life to Him and in your giving as well. That's the picture. And so it's a spiritual act of worship. In some ways, I, I wish, and, and we've talked a little bit about it, you know, it used to be a part of our gathering for worship that the plate was passed. And with COVID, we stopped that. Now, the plates are still out there. You can do it that way if you choose. Many of us do it online now. I do think we lose something in that. What we lose in that is the reminder that that passing of that plate, if you want to use that terminology, is a picture of what part of our worship should be. And that is of giving. It's a spiritual act of worship. It's also a joyful act of worship. In verse 6, here's, here's, here's what he's saying. They just rejoiced that they had been able to give with a whole heart. That they've been offered freely to the Lord. And David the king rejoiced greatly as well. And that's the whole point that Paul makes later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 when he says that God loves this cheerful giver. This idea of not giving out a compulsion or because you have to. Out of the abundance of joy we give. And that joy is depicted and it's multiplied in that act of giving. In fact, David said in 2 Corinthians when he's talking about the people of Macedonia, they gave themselves first to the Lord, as we just saw, and then it was a joyful act on their part. Not reluctantly, but what they decided in their heart to give, because God loves a cheerful giver. Generosity is this picture of joyful worship. And it's this picture of, of being grateful and thankful. And it says, now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. We will look at all of this later on in more detail as we begin to work our way through David's life. But this example here is one that I think it's important we just take a second and just think about for just a second that, that this generosity that we're talking about cannot, cannot be disconnected from the grace that God has extended to us in Christ. We, we have to guard that. We have to guard that. I want to show you one other thing. Before I close, I want you to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 24. It's on page 277. This is an event, toward, again, toward the end of David's life. 
And David just messes up big time. He, he just messes up big time. As he takes a census that God had not given him permission or direction to do. David wants to number Israel. He wants, and, and I'm not going to get into the motivation behind that or all the details that go into that. Suffice it to say that he took this census and that it was a sin in God's eyes and that God struck the people of Israel. In fact, it's kind of extraordinary there. God gave David his choice of punishment. <laughs> and David said, no, Lord, I'm just, tr- I'm just going to place my life and the lives of these people in your hands, what, whatever you choose. And so God did chose, and he brought a pestilence. He brought a plague, and it was devastating. And David cried out to God for mercy. And it says in Second Samuel, there in verse 24 and verse 15, The Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. It was devastating. And, and it says next, And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So God pours this punishment out and then he relents by his mercy. And this takes place in a place that's significant. Here's what I want us to see as we wrap this up. This significance of this place called the threshing floor there that where, where God relents. All right. The threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. What happens next is also significance. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Rise up, go, build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So Gad comes and says to David, Build an altar here. God has relented here. This is where God has shown mercy. Build an altar here. Worship here. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down and saw the king and his servants coming toward him, and Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground, and Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. And then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. So David goes to buy this threshing floor. And the owner of it, Aruna, says, No, just take it. Take it. And not only take the property, take the oxen to offer as a sacrifice. And not only take the property and the oxen, but take the threshing sledge and all of the, the implements and use them as the wood for the, for the sacrifice. He says, here it all is, David. Take it and use it. And look at what David says. In verse 24, the king said to Aruna, no, 
but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from David. There's a lot that can be preached and taught from that passage. Here's what I want you to see. This place is significant. And if we were to go back and take the time to look at a passage in Second Chronicles chapter 3, it says that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed. So this threshing floor of Aruna is also a place called Mount Moriah. And you probably remember that Mount Moriah is the place in the Old Testament where David told this gentleman named Abraham to take his only son, the son he loved, Isaac, and sacrifice him to the Lord there on Mount Moriah. And there on Mount Moriah, instead of taking that boy's life, God provided a lamb as a substitute. So, the mercy of God extended to David on this mountaintop was a reason and a place for worship. Because it's the same mountaintop where God earlier had extended mercy and grace to Abraham when he offered his son. And it's not far from this mountain that many years later, the Son of God would be offered up as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And that God in His mercy and grace... This promise-keeping, generous, gracious God that we see pictured here in this last chapter of 2 Samuel. So the point that I bring as I close with this particular episode in David's life is just to recognize that the generosity of God, the grace of God, is eternally seen and most perfectly seen in the cross of Calvary, which took place not far from this mountain. Some commentators say it was on this mountain. I don't think so. But it was really close. So this picture of Abraham and Isaac and the ram caught in the thicket, this picture of David and the angel of the Lord and God's mercy relenting on that mountain, and this picture of God being so gracious and kind that He offers up His Son as a sacrifice for rebels like you and me, and this picture of generosity. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, Paul says. And that's the picture that we see. Now, let me just give you four points of application. And I'll, I'll post these for you later on this afternoon on our church's website. But here's the first point of application, and it goes to this mountaintop. It goes to Calvary. The gift of God's grace. If you've never received God's grace in Christ, come to Jesus today. My goodness, do you see this? We ended this sermon in this place, this threshing floor, this place where God's mercy and grace were so graciously extended. David's kindness to Mephibosheth, who could have and many ways was his enemy, is a picture that God loved us in that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us, Paul says in Romans. Do you see this picture of God's extravagant generosity like David poured on Mephibosheth? 
that David, that Paul says in, in, in Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our iniquities, according to his lavish riches of grace, Paul says. God's offer to you today of salvation in Christ is generous, it's extravagant, it's gracious, it's so costly. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus if you never have. I can talk to you about that at the end of the service. Jason, JT, any of our elders, most of our members should be able to do that. Receive the gift of God's grace in Christ. Secondly, hear me on this. The Bible allows no disconnect between the grace of God in Christ and our generosity. The Bible allows for no disconnect there. You will not find it. And just as we ended that sermon, in this sermon there at that threshing floor of Aruna, because that's where we see that grace most perfectly exhibited in Christ, generosity is built on and flows from God's grace to us in Jesus. And the fact is, while the Bible says there cannot be that disconnect there, the reality is that there is. There's a great disconnect between our profession that we've trusted in God's grace in Christ and our practice with our finances. That's just the reality. That's just the reality. I don't, I don't have any idea who gives what here except for what me and Susan give. And there's only one person in this church that does know that information. And that's her job to know it. But, but she did tell me that we have families in our church. We have, we have covenant members of our church who, who last year gave zero. Now, I don't know who that is, and is that a concern? Yeah, that's a concern. Not from a financial standpoint, but from a spiritual standpoint, because that gives an indication that in some people's lives there is clearly a disconnect between what I profess and what I practice. And so I just point that out to you, that, that, that the Scriptures don't allow for that distinction. And over and over in the New Testament... Especially in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 where Paul really addresses this. He calls this an act of grace because that's what it is. And, and listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He's talking about the ministry of giving and how it results in thanksgiving. Okay? You heard from Susan and Aaron in the video just a minute ago. God is thanked when God's people are generous. So family life services, life choices is thankful. And they, and they should be, as all of us should be thankful, when God blesses us through others. But here's what Paul says. This is an interesting, and I'm just going to read this. I invite you to go back and look at it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, The ministry of this service, and he's talking about stewardship, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You heard that. But here's what he says. By the approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution. Did you hear that word submission to the confession of the gospel of Christ? That's why there can't be a disconnect. Because our stewardship is a picture of our submission to the lordship of Christ and his lordship over everything that we have, which David says comes from his hand. The Bible allows for no disconnect. If it's there, go before the Lord and confess it. It is sin. We need to repent of it. We need to repent of it. Thirdly, 
Building a financial strategy on biblical generosity and faithful stewardship is the only way to live with genuine joy and confidence, especially today. In the midst of troubling, tumultuous, crazy financial issues going on in our society and in our world. In the midst of a day and an age like this, how can you have any confidence? Right? How can you have any peace? You can't. If your stability, your perspective, your peace, and your hope are built on anything other than Christ. And when Paul wrote to those folks in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and said, In the severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. It's counterintuitive. It makes no sense financially. I understand that. It's supernatural. God is able to make all grace abound to you, Paul says. All grace. So that you will have all sufficiency and all things at all times and can abound in every good work. There's a bunch of us that could just sit down with you and share testimony after testimony after testimony of this math that makes no sense. And I just encourage you to trust the Lord in that. And finally, fourthly, the faithful, joyful, worshipful giving of his people is how God chooses to build his kingdom. It's crazy, this crazy math that doesn't make any sense apart from eyes of faith and trust is the way God has chosen to build His kingdom to support pregnancy support centers like this one next door to us. To take care of orphans. To, to carry out His ministry. To take the gospel to unreached people groups. This is where Jesus calls us to invest. And it's the only place where moths will not destroy, rust will not destroy, and thieves will not break in and steal. It's the only place. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for your word, for the attention and the listening of these folks. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take what has been preached and read and prayed and sung And, Lord, you'll produce fruit for your glory and the good of uh, the building up of your church and this community and that the lost would be reached with the gospel. Lives would be saved. Mothers would be encouraged and strengthened and equipped at life choices. Lord, that young people through My Life Matters would be impacted with the gospel. Lord, so many things go on through through the work and the ministry of your church. And we thank you that you've called us and allowed us to participate in it. God, help us give you our hearts. Help us give you our hearts. And then all this other stuff will follow. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.